I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Brian Greene. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Okay. 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 Uh, those of you in the back, see if you can see a seat and have a seat. Those of you already seated, Welcome to the Center for the Study of Science and Religion at Columbia University. My name is Bob Pollack. I'm a biology professor. I teach with Professor Green in an undergraduate course for all first-year students at Columbia. And I like to think of this presentation as an extension of that notion of interdisciplinary talk. So I'm very glad to welcome you on behalf of myself, my colleague Cynthia Peabody, our colleague Miranda Hawkins, and the many students who work with us. I want to give one small business point, that is the next one of these Center for the Study of Science and Religion seminars will be on Tuesday, December 10th, same place, and the topic will be Religious Responses to Modern Slavery. I hope some or all of you will be here and you'll tell your friends. My job this morning, this morning, this evening, is you can see how nervous I am, is to introduce Brian Green and, uh, and Krista Tippett. I know them both for a very long time, and this is the first time I've seen them in the same room together. Krista Tippett uh, and I met when she interviewed me soon after 9-11 on the problem of evil, which is one of the programs in her previous series, Speaking of Faith. Brian and I, as I said, teach, and I have been an admirer of his ability to explain difficult concepts in physics for many years. So I have nothing more to say except to thank you, to ask you to remember this is being recorded, to shut your cell phones, shut all sources of extraneous noise, and let's welcome Krista and Brian. So thanks to Bob Pollack, and it's lovely to see all of you out here tonight. Um, I thought maybe we might start a little bit by talking about the relativity of weather, how in Minnesota it's much colder, but it feels colder in New York. A mystery I was discussing with Paul before it's we started. It's beyond us to figure that out. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Paul, do you have what you need from us in terms of sound? Okay, so we were instructed to banter. Um, one thing I can uh, reiterate, which Bob said, is please don't just silence your cell phone, but power it down. And we will be turning this conversation tonight into an on-being radio show and podcast. Probably will be airing uh, by the end of the year. Uh, by, yeah, by the end of the year. Um, so we'll speak up here about 50 minutes or an hour, and then I'll open it up for 20 minutes or so, and and we'll bring it back, and we'll be done in 90 minutes. Can we go? Okay. All right. So, Brian, I've been following your work for a long time, and I'm so happy to finally be having this conversation. Oh, thank you. Um, I, uh, I always start my interviews, whoever I'm speaking with, um, by just asking if there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood. I actually find you quite philosophical, kind of between the lines, of a lot of your writing, and are there roots to that? Well, I'd say there are. You know, from a formal religious standpoint, I would say that there was, there was ritual, and there was 
a cultural emphasis on heritage. But there wasn't really a religious focus per se. I mean, I was bar mitzvahed, but two months before I turned 13, I finally met with a rabbi and you know he recorded what I was supposed to say and I listened to it and I memorized it and I said it at the event in the synagogue and everybody was crying in the front row as I was <laughs> saying it. I had no idea what I was saying. I really had no idea what it was about. <laughs> Um, but I enjoyed the gifts uh, that I got at, at the end of it. Um, but, um, you know, both my parents, but my father in particular, he was a composer. Mm-hmm. And he really loved ideas. I mean, he was, um, you know, didn't go to college. He liked to say that he was an SPHD, a Seward Park High School dropout. Mm-hmm. You know, so in 10th grade, he was on the road performing, but he had a very spiritual, philosophical outlook on life, and that certainly permeated my childhood. And a huge collection of books, right? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing that you have really brought to many people in your career, both as a scientist and as a writer and with your uh, work in media, is kind of um, really helping people see and take delight in the human drama of scientific discovery. Um, You've written, uh, science is the greatest of all adventure stories. And I, and I also wonder, like, uh, how, how far back do you trace that? When and how did you start to perceive science as a great adventure story? Well, I think like many who are in theoretical physics, there was a love of mathematics at mm-hmm. an early age. And for me, as I suspect for many of my colleagues, although frankly I've not had this conversation with many of them, so I don't know for sure, the fact that you could learn a few operations, you know, addition, multiplication, division, subtraction, and then you could go off and do things that no one had done before. Multiply this number by that number. I mean, no one had done it before because it wasn't interesting. But the fact that you could sit down and actually do something with this very limited base is enormously exciting for a young kid that has that sort of mathematical outlook. And for me personally, it was in high school that I finally recognized that this game of mathematics could be parlayed into a description of reality. In fact, there's one experience when I was taking advanced placement physics where we had this problem that I remember really crystal clear. It had a baseball attached to like a piece of chewing gum that was stuck to the ceiling and the ball was swinging as the chewing gum was stretching. And you're asked to figure out the trajectory of the ball. I mean, who really cares, right? But there I was at my desk doing the calculation, getting the answer. And it was one of these holy cow moments that you had this formula that would predict what would really happen. I remember running down the hallway to my dad and saying, look at this formula that would tell you what would happen with the baseball and the chewing gum. And for me, it was one of those moments of this kind of pursuit is a way into the deep mysteries of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so when we were, when Bob and I were communicating back and forth and planning this, um, they asked me to come up with a title. And um, I, don't, I don't generally like to come up with a title before a conversation because I, I want the conversation to be surprising. Um, but I did, uh, we did, we did say reimagining the cosmos, because as I looked at... That's a good one. I yeah, like well, as I looked at the sweep of your work, um, and at physics, and, and especially, I think, physics in our time, that seems to be one way of describing what physics is doing. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
I mean, what we have learned over the last three or 400 years, really since the time of Isaac Newton, where his focus was on the physics that you could see, and he was codifying the motion of objects, the motion of the moon in the mathematical equations that still bear his name. That was the physics that you could see. And ever since then, we've been jumping off from that starting point to describe the physics that you can't see. Right. So the physics of electricity and magnetism, that's invisible stuff. And yet people like Faraday and Maxwell were able to understand what was going on and write down new equations to give you insight into that mysterious invisible world. And then comes general relativity with warped space and time and quantum mechanics with the weirdness of probabilities and on to the things that we're doing today with the, the Higgs field and the Higgs boson and more exotic ideas with string theory and possibly extra dimensions. I mean, it's all part of a narrative which is going beyond everyday experience to try to lift the veil and really, as you say, reimagine how the world is put together. Mm -hmm. And reimagining the questions with each new answer that's arrived at or each new... Yeah, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, you know, even, even Newton said it, right? He said, you know, if I've seen further than others, it's because I have stood on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm -hmm. Every previous generation allows you to see further and ask right. new questions. And I, mean, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but... Nobel laureate Mari Gelman is said to have sort of reframed that as, you know, if I've seen further than others, it's because I've been surrounded by midgets, right? So that's a, you know, it's a, it's a, very, different, a very different way of looking at it. I like to take the, the shoulders of giants approach. And, and every next generation can not only see further, but can ask questions that were unimaginable right. in an earlier age. Mm -hmm. I mean, so um, from a non, even from a non-science point of view, I think about in my lifetime some what seemed to be really basic assumptions, say when I was learning science in school, in our lifetime, that have completely changed, right? Like how I learned definitively that um, an atom was composed of an electron, a proton, and a neutron, right? Or space, which I think connoted a void is not a void at all, right. but full of mysterious energy and matter that science is, physics, physics is now trying to understand, or um, that the universe, uh, which, as you point out in your writing, in the, the, the literal sense of that word, is the only, you know, one world, it may just be one, one reality, one world among many. It's yeah, fascinating. It is, and a lot of those ideas are confirmed, many of them are hugely speculative. Mm -hmm. The collection of them, though, does paint an exciting picture of discovery, of going beyond what you can sense and experience. And there's a way in which we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? I mean, why do we have an intuition about the world? Why is it that if I were to, say, pick up this glass, I mean, it's filled with water, but if I was to take another object and throw it at you, you'd know where to put your hand to catch it without even doing any calculations, perhaps mm -hmm. even without even remembering how to do the calculations. You could still figure it out. And the reason is because we have been under evolutionary pressure to get good at certain things because they aided our survival. But understanding how you know, the vacuum of space behaves, whether it has energy or not, how the electron behaves, whether it's a, a particle or a wave, understanding the nature of gravity and how it might curve space and time, these things 
do not generally aid in our survival. In fact, you could argue that our forebears who are out there on the savanna who sat down to contemplate electrons, are they particles or waves? Right. Well, they got eaten, you know, by that, that lion that came by. So it was probably, you know, evolutionarily extinguished to have, you know, those kind of thoughts. Right, and, but so you, you make the provocative point that, in fact, our intuition doesn't serve us well at all. That our, that our senses, which is the way we move through the world and the way we perceive reality, mislead us. When we are asking deep questions about reality, I think that is the case, right? I mean, if you went by your senses, you would think that this table is solid, right? But we now know that this table is mostly empty space, right? If you went by your senses, you would think that time is universal. It ticks off the same rate for everyone, regardless of their motion or the gravity that they are experiencing. We know for a fact that that is not true. We all carry our own clock, and it ticks at a rate that is hugely dependent on those features of motion and gravity. So there's a very long list of things that you would be completely misled by if you relied on your senses to understand how that feature of the world works. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking when I was reading you, and I know you, you quote, Einstein, we discussed earlier, he's so incredibly quotable. <laughs> They've broken my own rule. Um, about his pursuit of, which I just think is so evocative, what he said about pursuing the order hidden deeply, deeply hidden behind everything. Yeah. And um, he had a, a scientific outlook. He had a philosophical outlook. He had a poetic outlook. Yeah. He was able to describe not only science, but the journey of science. I mean, one of my favorite quotes, and I'll get it wrong, but it's somewhat close to this, when he reflected back on the journey to discover his new theory of gravity, the general theory of relativity, he described it as years of anxious searching in the dark for a truth that he could sense but couldn't quite see right. until finally he emerged into the light. That goes back to your first question. There is the adventure of science. I mean, that way of looking at science paints a clear picture of the most exciting journey of discovery that you could possibly imagine. And that's what it is all about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about a few things on this frontier in this adventure right now unfolding. Um, how long have you been working on string theory? Well, I started working on string theory as a graduate student, so that was um, back in the 1500s. Um, <laughs> so I was back you know, in the 1980s. So mm -hmm. you know, if anyone has a calculator, I guess it's on the order of 30 30, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, long time. I mean, so again, from the outside, it seems like string theory has had its moments where everyone was excited about it, and it was the solution, and it's been credited and discredited, and now it feels like it's, it's back. It's back as seen as promising in a, in a wider way. Um, I mean, just talk, talk to us a little bit about the state of string theory within physics now. Well, I think any, any subject at the cutting edge is going to go through cycles in which there are these very fertile periods of tremendous discovery and breakthrough. And then naturally, scientists need to take a step back and try to think about what those discoveries mean. And there's a more contemplative span of time where those discoveries are digested and tried to be used to further the study of the subject and so forth. And the string theory is so 
I mean, I don't know if you would use this word, but there's a way in which it feels so playful, right? I mean, it's so imaginative, right? Um, it de- I agree with you in a sense. It all depends what you mean by that. I mean, it, it's very important to recognize that all the ideas of string theory, even though the, the language may seem particularly uh, accessible, evocative, is built upon very robust mathematical insights and discoveries and explorations. And sometimes I feel funny because, I mean, even this happens, I get manuscripts from people who have read one of my popular books or seen one of my popular television shows and written me the manuscript that they believe has the next step or the answer. Because it clearly indicates that they haven't grasped one very vital fact, which is those books and the TV shows are a translation Mm -hmm. from the rich mathematical archive to more accessible everyday language, and there's really no way to make progress without delving in to the non-playful side of the subject, well, which I is guess the I, you know, I don't know if playful is the right word. Wildly creative is what it... I, I like that too, but mm-hmm. again, and I don't mean yeah. to, to qualify everything that yeah. you say, yeah. uh, but it's, it's very creative, but within yes. an extremely rigid straitjacket. So everything that you do needs to ensure that the math is consistent, that there are no internal inconsistencies between the equations, that you can extract from the theory the things that we know and love about the world, like quantum theory and general relativity. So yes, you allow your imagination to run freely, but within a very limited context. Mm So um, The Hidden Reality is your latest book, right? It's your newest book. Yes, and, that's right. And, and that um, it takes on this very kind of fiction science subject of parallel universes, multiple universes, multiple realities, um, which I guess is, a, is one of these, you know, again, from the outside, very wildly, wildly, yeah, yes. far out, uh, Impl- potential implications of string theory, um, and you you go through th- several different iterations of that, different possibilities. Um, I think, uh, as a fellow Star Trek fan, long time, um, maybe the one I got most excited about was. Uh, well, first, let's just talk about that a little bit about the whole idea of parallel universes. I mean, there's this great line. Um, is that one of the implications of this is there is no such thing as a road untraveled. Right. And um, that comes from one particular flavor of multiverse that comes from quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. And again, one of the things I emphasize in the book, and it's worth restating now, these ideas are brought to us by the mathematics. We don't dream up these ideas and try to shoehorn them into equations. That's not how we work. We sit there, the math jumps out of the page, kind of grabs us by the lapel, slaps us in the face, and says, look at me. What this is telling you is there might be parallel universes. And we say, oh, that's curious. Let's, let's think about that and investigate it. So that's the, yeah. the typical rhythm of the way in which these ideas surface. This idea that you're referring to comes out of quantum mechanics, which is this new way of describing the fundamental particles of nature that emerged in the early part of the 20th century. And the new idea is that you can only predict the probability of one outcome or another. Newton wouldn't have said that. He would say, tell me how things are and I'll predict how they will be, period, end of story. Quantum theory says, no, no, no. I can tell you there's a 30% chance of this, 50% chance of that, 20% chance of that outcome over there. 
And the interesting question, which we still have not resolved, is when you actually do a measurement, perform an observation, and you find, say, the electron at one location or another, what happened to the other potential outcomes? You might say, well, they just go away. Well, the math doesn't really allow them to just go away that easily. In fact, one of the proposals is that every outcome happens, they just happen in distinct realities, in right. parallel universes. So somewhere, all of those possible outcomes were man made manifest. That's right. So basically, any outcome allowed by the quantum laws of physics mm -hmm. would see the light of day, but the light would be flowing through a different universe. Okay. And then I think, uh, and this is the one that uh, really uh, excited the Trekkie in me, is um, th this idea of that uh, another way of imagining is that uh, this is all a hologram. Yes, that's right. So this is an idea that comes out of string theory and has a nice long history that relies on non-string theoretic ideas that come from the physics of black holes, even thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. A lot of physics comes into the history of this idea, but the proposal is that we may actually be a holographic projection of laws of physics that exist on a thin surface that surrounds us, say, at the far edges of the universe, much as a hologram is a thin piece of plastic which, when illuminated correctly, creates a realistic 3D image. We may be the 3D image, if you will, of the physics that exists on that bounding surface. Now, that sounds insane, and it might be insane, but again, the rhythm is the same. Mm -hmm. This idea comes from the careful study of physics that has proven itself able to describe things that we can test. General relativity, we have tested it, we understand it well. Quantum theory, we understand it well. Statistical mechanics, we understand it well. And when you put all this together, this is at least one of the possibilities that you're led to. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we would, or what we perceive as reality, is, is really a secondary projection of an original, the, an, of, of the real store of information somewhere. That, that is one way of saying it. So the, the, the least controversial way of describing this very controversial idea would be that there are simply two parallel descriptions of the same reality. One that's very familiar, people in a room like we have here, and one that's unfamiliar but equivalent to it, which takes place on this thin surface that surrounds us. But frankly, when you look at the equations and try to allow yourself to take them very seriously, they do suggest that the more pristine description, the more economical, the more efficient description is the one on that two-dimensional surface, mm -hmm. which might make familiar reality the secondary version as you're describing it. So, um all of this science, um, without wanting to, raises a lot of really basic philosophical, ancient philosophical questions about destiny and fate and choice. Do you, um, I understand that's not what you're studying, and the mathematics doesn't speak to that directly. Well, it sort of does. I mean, when, yeah. it, when, it, when you ask the question about choice, I presume you're indicating things like free will. Yeah. And... You know, by no means would I say that we've got the be-all and end-all mathematical description of reality. We're, we're struggling to get there. But as a snapshot, if you look at the equations that we have today, 
there does not seem to be a place anywhere in those equations where you say, uh, okay, and here is where human free will comes into uh, how things are going to evolve, right? There's no term in the equations where that happens. Quite the contrary, we seem to be just a collection of particles that are governed by the same laws of physics that govern the particles in this table. And with that perspective, there doesn't seem to be any room for free will, any room for choice. Now again, we don't have the final answer, and maybe you know, 10 years or 100 or 1,000 years from now, we'll have the new equations, and we look at them and say, aha, that, there is free will in the equations. The thing that we've always experienced, it's real, there it is playing itself out in the math. But it's hard for me to see how that will be. But this is one of those um, examples of what the equations say in a persuasive way, and then you know, ex what experience feels like. Uh, yeah, you have you to know? sort of jettison that what experience feels like thing, you know, um, and, and it's very hard to do. And I, I empathize, I sympathize, and, you know, I struggle with it every day. You know, I walk down the street and, you know, I still imagine, you know, that the ground is solid, right? I still imagine, you know, that time is what I intuitively think that it is. And sometimes I do grab myself by the lapels and I say, see reality for what it is. And it's hard to do that when you are constantly being fooled by these senses that have served us well to get to this point, but they do not serve us well to understand how reality works. So yeah, it's hard to do, but you gotta do it. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, so I keep, well, let me just do it. I keep thinking of another thing Einstein said, that um, science is good at describing what is, but it doesn't describe what should be. And there's a way in which the, the way we've tended throughout human history to talk about something like free will um, or fate or destiny or choice or, you know, just the human condition um, is in terms of what should be, what we can, what we can control. Um, right. So, so we live we our lives. Yeah. We live our lives as if we do have control. And I think it's the only way that you can live. You tell yourself this interesting, perhaps untrue story that when you reach out for the glass, you're making a choice to pick it up. And I do it too. I sort of felt like I just picked that glass up because I made a choice, but fundamentally, I don't think that I did. But putting that to a side, yes, we, we feel we have control. We act as though we have control. And then Einstein's quote comes into play because once you have control, you can shape the future and you can shape the future according to distinct values. And yeah, I think that is the only way that we humans can live, at least you know, in this epoch, you know, until we evolve to some other form. And sure, there is no way to look to science to tell us how to shape things from some sense of value judgment. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the Higgs boson. From free will <laughs> to the Higgs boson. That's right. <laughs> I'm sure they're related somehow, too. Um, I want you to, you wrote an article for the Smithsonian Magazine last summer, and I'd like for you to tell the parable of the fish that you said physicists tell each other. Oh, yeah, right. So, you know, the, the, let me just motivate it first. So the idea of this Higgs particle, Higgs boson, I think most people have probably heard about it or read something about it, 
suggests now from experimental data that a theoretical idea that was pure mathematics when it was introduced might be correct, which is that the universe may be filled with an invisible substance called the Higgs field, and as particles try to burrow through this environment, they feel a kind of resistance, which is where their heft or their mass comes from. But we have to accept this strange idea that there is this invisible substance that is all around us. And I love the idea that mass is interactive. That's right. right so that mass comes from an interaction. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. It's not something that is just sort of imbued from the get-go or from the outside. Now, a parable that gives us some sense of how you can take that very strange story and make it seem less strange is to just think of fish in the ocean or fish in a fish tank, right? They're swimming around and they're really not aware that there is a part of the universe that's not filled with this watery substance. In fact, this water is so familiar to them that that is emptiness, that is their universe. So there you have some beings that are living within an environment that is suffused with essentially an invisible something, water, and yet because they're in it all the time, they don't know it. We are in the Higgs field all the time. We experience our interaction with it all the time, and that's why we don't even know it. And that's why it takes these dedicated experiments to clue us into something which at some level should be obvious. So this is what I, I think I understood from reading your article and in a way that all the articles I've read about Higgs boson have not quite helped me grasp that, um, that what the Large Hadron Collider did is that it was able to jiggle this field enough that to you know to cause a tiny droplet to to spill off yes and then provide some kind of evidence yes that's that exactly there was something right. to this theory that's right so this machine slams protons together near the speed of light and through that collision the ambient higgs field like water if you had two submarines crashing into each other the field gets jostled, and if you jostle it the right way, which happens about one in every trillion collisions, you can flick off a little speck of the field, which is the Higgs particle that we believe was found. Mm -hmm. So you got it right, right from the article. Perfect. <laughs> and that this is a new form of matter. Yes, that needs to really be emphasized. So. The discovery of a, a new particle is exciting. The discovery of a particle that has been predicted for four decades is exciting. But it's even more exciting because there has never been a particle like this before. So just to quickly tell you why, we've known for a long time that the familiar particles like electrons and quarks, protons and neutrons, they're not even fundamental, but they all share the property that they spin around sort of like a top. There's a quantum mechanical twist to this, but it's not such a bad image to uh, envision that they're spinning around like a top. The Higgs particle is the only particle, only fundamental particle that we have that doesn't spin around. It's a spinless species of particle. Now, that may sound kind of esoteric. Who really cares whether it spins or not? The reason why that's very exciting to us, we have made use in our equations of spinless particles, hypothetical ones, mm. for decades. They play a role in our understanding of the Big Bang. But you couldn't be sure. You couldn't prove they existed. You couldn't even know that the, even that species was real. Right. So now we found one species that has this spinless property, which gives us a little bit more hope that the other versions that we've used in our equations might be true as well. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> and so explain something else to me. You, 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 in this context of the Higgs field, you, you, you talk about this as being 
a manifestation of nature's version of nature versus nurture. I do recall saying that. <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm sitting here now, and it, it, it has such a nice ring to it. I do not know what the heck I was well, referring I was like, okay. to any longer. Can it was like last summer. Can you tell me what I meant when yes, I said that? Yes, allow me. And allow let me just me even tell you, I remember the editor at Smithsonian said, you know, <laughs> I, you know, it sounds nice, but we don't really get it. I was like, it's so obvious what it means. And now I'm sitting here. I can't remember what I was referring okay, to. Okay, so what you were talking about yeah. is that there's an interplay between these fundamental laws and there's also an environmental factor. Oh, yeah, there we go. Thank okay. you. Yeah, that, that, you're that, welcome. That, that, that. You can call me anytime you want to understand your own Yeah, articles. thank you. No, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. I couldn't have said it better by, myself. Um, yeah, that's right. So you've got the fundamental laws of nature, which we think of as nature's way of grabbing hold of the universe and causing it to evolve in certain ways, according to those laws. But there's also a feature of the things that we experience that is just out there. It's almost a historical happenstance that in our realm, space is filled with this field, and we also experience the effect of it. So it's the fundamental laws together with the environment that really come together to shape our experience, even from our fundamental understanding of the Higgs field. Mm -hmm. So what is the relationship between this, the... Uh quest to understand what dark energy and dark matter are and the Higgs boson field? Well, that's a really good question, especially on the dark energy front, because there were some wonderful observations back in the 1990s that turned our understanding of cosmology upside down, because we've known since 1929 that the universe is expanding, but everybody thought that the expansion was slowing down over time because basically gravity pulls things together. So the gravity of each galaxy would be tugging on each other, slowing the cosmic expansion. But these observations showed surprisingly that the expansion is speeding up over time. Mm -hmm. They won the Nobel Prize for this right. observation. Right, that's one of those observations that completely turned a lot of givens on their on That's right. I mean, everybody yeah. thought what they were doing was just confirming what everybody knew and putting some quantitative detail to the rate of cosmic slowdown. Mm -hmm. But they found that it was cosmic speed up, not slow down. So that left us theorists with the puzzle to explain why it is that the universe is speeding up in its expansion. And the best answer we have today is that space is filled with another uniform, invisible something called dark energy. It's very similar, in a sense, to the Higgs field, except what this dark energy does is it gives rise to a repulsive gravitational force, something that comes right out of Einstein's mathematics. Mm -hmm. Gravity does not only have to be attractive. Let me emphasize, does not only have to be attractive. It can be repulsive. If the source of the gravity is not the sun or the earth or the moon, but this dark energy filling space. And that is our best explanation for what's pushing. Repulsive gravity is pushing all the galaxies apart. Let me just say, now that we found that there is another invisible something filling space, the Higgs field, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel so far-fetched to imagine this dark energy might be the real explanation. But the Higgs field is not dark energy. It no. The, the scales involved, the energy scales involved are not right for it to literally be the dark energy, but the dark energy shares many features okay. with this Higgs field. All right. So as you say, it points you to the, it, 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 it confirms this, this sense that, um, that, that dark energy could be what you're perceiving That's right. it is. That's yeah. right. Okay. Um, so 
let's come back to the these existential questions again. Um, you you quote Einstein a lot. You also quote Camus a fair amount, and. Um, yeah, they're both yeah. dead. They can't really come they're back bo- and yeah. say, hey, don't, 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 don't misuse my words that way. So it's, it's kind of a safe, a safe thing to do. Um, but you, you seem to have been quite taken when you read Camus' writings. Was that, one, was that that book that you pulled down from yeah, the top that, shelf true. of your father's No, it was. My dad, my dad had you know, a very varied library that sort of spanned a whole variety of subjects. And one of the books was a Camus book, Myth of Sisyphus. Was it the Myth of Sisyphus? Yeah, and um, uh, it's kind of an amazing thing that in the opening sentences, uh, Camus talks about how knowledge of certain features of the world, like whether or not there are three dimensions, you know, this is, you know. Did he say that? Yeah, yeah. You know, oh. and, you know and, and whether or not the brain has this or that many distinct processes that are going on. He basically listed a variety of scientific questions, and he said all of those are secondary, because the only true philosophical question, he said, was that of suicide. Now, to a young kid... The, the choice to live or The choice to, to live or die, that's the live, only yeah. question that ultimately matters. And, you know, when I read that, I was quite young, and it was almost kind of the shocking uh, sentence to read, but it also seemed to me right, I mean, that is the only question that ultimately matters to the individual. But then as I got older, I began to see things a little bit differently. Because to me, the, the question of, of whether life is worth living, to me, is intimately dependent upon what life is and what reality is. Because ultimately, your life is lived within reality. So to me, the question of whether there are three dimensions or ten dimensions is so captivating mm-hmm. that it does impact my desire to live. And, and again, I don't mean that in some melodramatic sense. If tomorrow we establish that there are three dimensions of space, I'm not going to sort of jump off the Empire State Building. But what I mean is that these questions about the rock-bottom structure of reality do inform my life. They are not esoteric scientific issues that I leave in the office when I go home at night. And, and it's that distinction that ultimately struck me as not as accurate as it might be in mm-hmm. his writings. Mm-hmm. And for you, as for many scientists, I think, um, science you know, is essential to the fullness of our understanding of humanity, just as literature and art and music are. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we, we have these arbitrary distinctions and cordoning off of science in particular, it typically sits at the outskirts of culture and we sort of wheel it in whenever we have a problem. We wheel it in when we love the technological advances that it gives rise to, but still science is generally pushed off to the side relative to those things that really matter to a full life. You know, the examples that you give, like music or art or, or theater or literature, those are the things that really speak to our humanity. Mm-hmm. And science is somehow off there for the scientists. And I think that is tragic because science deserves to be right smack in the center of culture because it is our quest to understand who we are and how we fit into the big picture just as great poetry is, just as great literature is. So it's not this separate activity. It's all part of 
the human swirl to make sense of a fundamentally senseless position that we find ourselves in, right? We're thrust into this world on this rock that's orbiting a nondescript star in the outskirts of an ordinary galaxy. Wow, I mean, can you imagine being thrust into a, a, a more bizarre and strange reality than that? And what we've been doing for thousands of years is just trying to piece by piece get some understanding of where we came from, where the universe came from, and where it's all going. So to me, that is not distinct from what the poet does, hmm. or what the philosopher does, or what the great writer does, or the composer does. They just do it in a different language. I was very struck by the letter you received from a soldier in Iraq, and the, 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 the real comfort um, and meaning that he was able to take. I mean, that, that's one of those juxtapositions, right, between what the mathematics is telling you and this person in one of these very dark, gritty experiences of life. Man, I was absolutely right. You know, I, I, was, I was at first surprised myself to receive that letter and just to, just yeah. to say what it was. You know, it was, it was a soldier who was, who was writing basically from the battlefield and saying that out there in the sort of dusty, difficult environment of Baghdad, he had uh, one of my books with him. And he would dive into the book whenever he could because, as he wrote to me, he said it kind of gave him the ability to, to rise above all of the distressing and dangerous and frightening aspects of the local environment of wartime and lift himself into this realm of big questions where he could just feel like all of the, the difficulty and all the tragedy around him was put in context by virtue of seeing the larger picture of reality. And I think that is what science can do for you. It really can allow you to lift yourself out of the everyday, if that everyday is dangerous, if that everyday is somehow unpleasant, even if that everyday is wondrous, but it can allow you to lift above it and experience reality in, in a different way. So I was recently um, speaking, I think it was a religious setting, and, or it was a university setting, and, and somebody asked me, uh, a professor of the humanities talked about his concern that, um, that there's this new way of emphasizing the importance of science over the humanities. And, and one of the reactions I had is that um, I, I feel like sometimes when this is brought up culturally in terms of education and preparing people for the, for the future, it's leaving out yeah. this, this sense of wonder and of science's place in the deepest questions, the greatest mystery and, and, and explanation of reality and who we are. You're right. The urgency to, to fund STEM education largely comes from this fear of America falling behind, of America not being prepared. Right, right. And sure, I mean, that, that's a good motivation, but it certainly doesn't tell the full story by any means because we who go into science generally don't do it in order that America will be prepared for the future, right? We go right. into it because we're captivated by the ideas. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's how you get kids excited about this. By I mean, look, you look at any of the, the times when a government is willing to spend significantly on some undertaking, it's largely because they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to be taken over, 
Sputnik. They're afraid that somehow they're going to fall behind. And it's unfortunate that fear drives so much activity of that sort when the reality of those in the field are not driven by fear. They're driven just by the excitement of discovery. Mm -hmm. And if a kid can get that aspect, get that perspective on science, it's a, it's a very different reason and much better motivation for pushing forward. And that understanding of science suggests a really interesting interplay between science and the humanities, too. Yeah, for it, sure. It, it opens up yeah, your yeah, imagination yeah. about what that looks like. That's right, because you know when you recognize that these big questions of the ages that have for a long time been sort of viewed as part of the philosopher's archive or the, or the, the, the poet's yeah. inspiration, now science is starting to give us some insight real insight into how the universe began, real insight into what things will be like in the far future. You know, when you recognize that there are Earth-like planets out there, right? How does that not change your perspective on reality? So all of that needs to be folded in, and I am enormously impressed that there are so many artists, so many filmmakers that contact me, contact other scientists, because they want to be inspired right, by these new. ideas. Mm -hmm. They want to understand them, at a level where they can begin to infuse their own activities with the knowledge that science is revealing. Yeah, and I would even say that in the 21st century, um, things that are happening in physics, things that are happening in neuroscience, are actually speaking to uh, the questions that had been the domain of philosophy and theology and you know, spiritual traditions. For sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Do you? Um, it, it, I wonder. Are there discussions that are happening, even like in your life or at Columbia, across disciplines that you think wouldn't have happened 20 years ago? Well, it, it is always hard to break out of you know the institutional divisions between subjects, and that is no different here at Columbia than I think in many other places. But sure, I mean, one of the things that we do here is we have a rare opportunity. There's a course that we teach to freshmen in which scientists from a whole variety of different disciplines come together to try to give them some feel for the range of scientific exploration. So that sparks certain kinds of conversations that otherwise wouldn't happen. But um, it is certainly the case that we are far from some kind of ideal where the various disciplines just can play off of each other freely. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful image. It's very hard to put into practice. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to come back to this, um, the hiddenness again. Because uh, I, I think it's, it's perplexing. And, um, and there's a sense in which if, if, you know, even if we accept this and respect it, that... Uh, that our senses mislead us about the nature of reality, that that kind of thwarts um, the ability of ordinary human beings to internalize the lessons of science. No, you just got to learn math. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you said once, you said that assessing life through the lens of everyday experience, and you really meant their life as in the meaning, the, the ultimate, what reality is, is like gazing at a Van Gogh through the lens of an empty Coke bottle. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Um, I said that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that, that's um, not a bad metaphor. Okay, but, well, I mean, I... Uh, there are better metaphors. Um, 
But um, yeah, no, I think it's it's the the thing that we have to recognize is that you know since the 1800s we've we've learned that lesson. I mean, I think it was Faraday when when Faraday proposed. I, I think I've got my history right that there were you know magnetic fields, electromagnetic fields filling space. Right? How does a magnet work? I mean, you take these two pieces of metal together; they don't touch, but they can push against each other. How are they doing that? And this proposal that there's an invisible field that surrounds the magnet. People thought he was crazy, right? Now we sort of take it second nature, right? We sprinkle iron filings in the vicinity of the magnet. We can actually see the field by virtue of how those filings trace out these interesting lines of, of magnetic field lines. So, so we have, over time, been willing to accept things that are invisible, but initially seemed crazy when they were introduced. And when you recognize, and I think perhaps this brings it home the best, that quantum mechanics, it talks about a reality that is largely invisible, that involves probability waves propagating through environments. And yet when we use the mathematics of quantum mechanics to predict features of the world that we can measure, like the magnetic properties of a particle like an electron. We can do a calculation using quantum mechanics to 10 decimal places, two point whatever, one, three, five, nine, six, you know, 10 decimal places. That's the result of a mathematical calculation. We then go out and measure the magnetic properties and we find that digit by digit by digit, 10 decimal places long, the observation agrees with our scribbles on a piece of paper. How can you not be in awe of that? And how can you not be convinced that that is revealing some deep truth about reality that you simply are not privy to with your eyes or your hands or your ears. There's no sense that allows us to directly experience the quantum world, but the mathematics allows us to understand it and make predictions that agree with observation. That's a very powerful story. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot, at least right now, that, that, that is the substance of, a, of our day that um, can't be measured. I mean, do you think that at some point, something like consciousness or love um, might be measured? How did I know you were going to love? Man, I was saying, is she going well, to the love question? And I was right. Um, uh, I do. You know, I don't mean to, to sort of sound like you know, some, some heartless, cold scientist. I, I hope I don't come across the way because it's not how I am. But I do strongly believe, based on what we know today, and that could change when we have deeper understanding tomorrow, that all of consciousness, all of our emotions, is nothing but some physical process playing out inside this messy gray blob inside of our heads. That, to me, does not diminish consciousness. It does not diminish the experience of love or happiness or sadness or any of those things that make us human, but it does I think, reveal the true underlying process responsible for those sensations. And it's nothing but certain things happening inside this gray brain of ours, and one day we will understand it well enough to map it out in detail. Um, in, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to open this up for questions. I, I just, I, just following along these lines. Um, all right, so let's take... Um, this very ordinary experience we think we have of time. Yes. Right? It's just, it's, it is, again, the substance, the structure of our days as we perceive it. So our senses tell us, tell us the story of Newton's clockwork world, 
right? We, yes. 100 years after Einstein told us, explained that time is relative, we, we cannot internalize that, right? I mean, he said it's a stubbornly persistent illusion. Yeah. We had this stubbornly persistent illusion that our senses constantly reinforce that time is an arrow moving forward. It's linear. There's past, present, and future. Yes. We cannot internalize that. Um, but you, you live, you live with, you, you have your hands in this, this uh, understanding of reality all the time. So how do you experience, are you able to experience time differently in your human sense because of what you know as a scientist? Um, I, I can, as I was saying before, I can encourage myself to cut away experience and try my best to experience what I know to be true, but that's a far cry from actually living the truth. So if you ask me, is the past gone? Yes, I would answer yes to that. You know, is my father dead? Is he gone? Yes, that is how I answer as a human being. And, you know, when I look at the laws of physics and I take in the Einsteinian perspective, I can try to recognize that as Einstein taught us, the past is really not gone. It as is, is as real as the present or the future. You just have to recognize that different observers, different individuals in the universe moving at different speeds slice up reality in different ways. What's past for me could be future for somebody else. So in that sense, it is as real. It could be the present for them too. So it's as real as the present is for me. So yes, I know that stuff. I teach it. I make my students answer problems and take exams on it. But if you ask me, have I been able to really uh, stitch it into the fabric of my own mm -hmm. experience of life, no, it's very hard. It's very hard to overcome the day-to-day -day features of the world as our senses allow us to experience them. Um, it, when you say every once in a while you're able to stop, and you're, I mean, just, just kind of break that down for me, like in a moment where you, where you really make this attempt yeah, so I mean, there are times I'll walk down Broadway heading to get milk at Westside Market, as many in this room no doubt have done, and, you know, I'll pass somebody, and I will imagine how my watch is ticking off time at a different rate from their watch, and how as I look at their watch, I see time ticking off slowly. As they look at my watch, they see my watch ticking off time slowly. Sure, I play that game, and it's sort of a fun thing to try to put yourself into the true bubble of reality as physics has described it, but it's not as though there's any intuition, deep intuition associated mm -hmm. with that, right? If you were to wake me up at two o'clock in the morning and sort of rouse me from a deep sleep and ask me any of the, the real questions about time, I'd answer as a human being. I wouldn't answer, when I say that, I'd answer based upon the intuition of an ordinary human being. I wouldn't answer based upon the knowledge of somebody who has studied the physics. Mm -hmm. So I think this gets back for me to not questioning the value. You know, that's, that would be absurd. But, but how do we reconcile? It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. Well, maybe it's one that we don't really need to reconcile. Mm -hmm. I think as long as you're willing to live through life and say the vast majority of things I am experiencing are a lie. <laughs> they are misleading. Oh, that's easy. It's yeah. an interesting lie, and it's a useful one, because if I don't tell myself that lie, I have trouble existing in 
a social environment with other human beings, right? It, it's very hard to step outside of the things that everybody implicitly agrees on constitute reality. But if you are able and willing to tell yourself, okay, it's, it's a lie, it's fake, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because that's the only way I can live, as long as you can then turn your attention, at least in your mind, to the true reality, I don't think it's such a, a bad thing to have that parallel experience happening. And it, to me, that's basically what I do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel elegant to me. Well, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, you know I, I can envision that I one mean, day, you... <laughs> you know, one day we evolve to a point mm -hmm. where maybe we are actually experiencing life at fast speed or life at strong gravitational potential. And then we would find our intuition shifting toward yeah. the okay. true reality that comes into play there. But you know, at low speeds and low gravitational potential, the Newtonian worldview does a fantastically good job of describing how the world operates. And that's how our intuition evolved. And that's what we are stuck with. Mm -hmm. OK, let's, um, let's take some questions for a few minutes. And then we'll come back and close up here. Um, I believe there's a, what do people do? Just, yeah, here's a microphone. If you have a question, step up to the mic, Kevin. Just wait one second. Hi, Dr. Green. Um, what's the best evidence we have for string theory right now? Some, some of the best and most credible evidence that you know of we have for string theory. Yes, yeah, so the evidence, evidence that string theory Strings here is right. Good. So, other questions that uh, you guys would like to. Uh... <laughs> no. The, so, so, so the, the 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 quick answer to your question is absolutely nothing. So, string theory is a completely mathematical undertaking, and at the moment, there is no experiment that we can point to which you say there is the evidence for this idea. And for that reason, string theory really should be called the string hypothesis. Theory in science has a very specific meaning. And string theory does not rise to that level as yet. Now, having said that, let me just point out that we have tested quantum mechanics. We know it's part of the way the world works. We've tested general relativity. We know it's how it's part of the way the world works. We believe the universe has got to have a consistent description of the laws of physics. And without string theory, Quantum mechanics and general relativity are a theory of gravity. They do not come together in a consistent way. So string theory is solving or purporting to solve an absolutely vital problem to put gravity and quantum mechanics into one uniform package. So there's reason to believe that there has to be a theory that finally unites them together, and string theory is the theory that we have on the table. Additionally, let me just mention, it could have been the case that when you put gravity and quantum mechanics together, there was a theory on the table that had no resemblance to any of the other ideas that have been developed over the course of 30 or 40 or 50 years. The amazing thing is within string theory, you find, for instance, 
the Higgs field or something that can be the Higgs field. You find that you can incorporate electrons and quarks and neutrinos. You find that you can incorporate the gauge symmetries that give rise to the weak force and the strong nuclear force. So all of these ideas that have been slowly, systematically developed over the 20th century, they all find a natural home within string theory, which to boot puts together gravity and quantum mechanics. So there are many reasons to be excited about the theory, many reasons to have enough impetus to study it, but we've not made contact with experiment as yet. So earlier you mentioned the universe possibly being encoded on some sort of boundary, and you gave the analogy of a two-dimensional boundary on, to a three-dimensional object. I was wondering what the actual dimensions in the mathematics are. So it really this could... This will be accessible to the general public radio audience, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so there are various versions of this holographic idea, and the simplest incarnation would imagine that there is this two-dimensional surface surrounding our three-dimensional space. Now, there are more exotic versions that we have confidence in that at least make mathematical sense from string theory, where you're talking about a ten-dimensional space which has... Uh, a five-dimensional part that has time in it and an additional five-dimensional piece which takes the form of a sphere. And in that environment, you can also play this holographic game. So there are many mathematical incarnations of this idea, some of which we understand really well. And whether or not they're relevant to reality as we know it is still unclear. Although I should say there are certain string theorists who are absolutely certain that this is the right way of describing the universe. So we'll see how it plays out. If there's this idea of this base of information, of which everything else is a projection of that, doesn't, doesn't that, I, mean, I guess this is a pedestrian question, but doesn't that raise the question of the source of this information? I mean, one of the analogies you use, it's like we're the skyscraper to the architect's blueprint or... But so who's, I mean, what... what is the source of that blueprint. Right, it's hard to answer that question, and we don't purport to have an answer. It could be that when we understand how these ideas fit into cosmology, the study of the evolution of the entire universe, that we may have a story that if you begin with a universe in this and this state, then it evolves to a form where you have this information encoded on these boundaries and it all makes sense. Now, again, you could say, well, where does the initial universe, yeah, where does this, the initial this, nugget this come from? This could be science answering the question of, is there a God? That's right. Although, <laughs> you know, there, there are at least in principle ways to answer these questions that don't need to invoke anything that stands outside of the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So God, to me, is one of a variety of proposals that people have put forward of things which would stand outside the laws of physics. Because you could imagine, at least in principle, and again, I underscore in principle, maybe one day we will find that the reason the universe exists is because it would be logically inconsistent for it not to exist. That the laws of physics are so tight, so taut, that there is no possibility, no counterfactual makes sense. There had to be a universe because the laws of physics could not allow there not to be a universe. And that, to me, would be pretty convincing if we ever got to that point. Mm. So there wouldn't need to be something outside to make it exist. Logical consistency alone would demand it. Yeah. I have both a question, and I'm looking for some advice as to how to frame the question. So um, colleagues and I are talking about the revelations that the NSA has been spying on almost everyone, and 
I asked the question or I proposed the, the idea that that observation is potentially changing the result, right? The result of that observation could change solutions for privacy controls uh -huh. and all of that. So your parallel universe idea, I'm wondering if it partly answers my question that there is no privacy <laughs> because the observation spins off multiple solutions, multiple results, but I don't know how to frame the entire question. Yeah, that's pretty heavy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I know how to frame it either because again, while it's understandable and even laudable to try to link together some of the ideas that emerge from fundamental physics right. to so the experience is, of everyday this life. This is the idea that this is the assertion of, this is the new kind of discovery, right? In, again, in your lifetime, that, that in a way that there's no such thing as subjectivity, that the, that the observer also is a participant. That's right. So that's a, um, uh, actually a little bit before my lifetime. Was so, it? Um, you know, th this is, um, you know, back sort of in the 20s and 30s okay. uh, when people were struggling to understand quantum mechanics. One of the ideas that came to the fore in trying to address a question that we discussed briefly, which is how do you get a definite outcome from a theory that has probabilities built into it? And one of the thoughts that came forward was maybe it is the observer, him or herself, that their act of observation is vital to causing a unique reality to emerge from this fuzzy mathematics of probabilities. And I think over time, people have recognized that that was an overemphasis hmm. on observer, in the sense that it's not a human being that's vital to the story. It could be an amoeba, it could be a dog, it could be a computer that does the observation. It's just environmental interaction with the system that's being studied. And yes, it is the case that if quantum theory is correct, and we believe it is, that even the observational device, whether it's a human or a computer or an amoeba, when it comes into contact with the system it's studying, you have quantum systems coming together intermingling and you need to use quantum mechanics to describe the whole thing. So we're still struggling to really understand what that means, but I would say it has de-emphasized that earlier okay. idea that there is this pristine break between the observer and the observed. And it's only when the observer comes on the scene that new notions that disambiguate the probabilistic outcomes occur. Most people don't think that way any longer. Mm -hmm. And I think this question was analogizing that with exactly. a real world in the news exactly uh, right. yes. dynamic. Thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you for all your work and the way it's informing my guild. I'm a theologian. Uh, so I have two questions, really. I either did not understand or I am not convinced or persuaded by your conversation about free will. Um, because it sounds as if um, your proposal situates us in a very deterministic universe and that we are simply in, in some sense, um, almost robots acting out of these general laws, and that there's no novelty within this very, very complex and creative entity that we are as conscious beings. That's my first uh, So, uh, yes, it, it is hard to accept. <laughs> <laughs> so can but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say there's no novelty. 
you know, when you bring complex systems together, even when they're governed by deterministic laws of physics, mm -hmm. which as we understand, some people say, well, what about quantum mechanics? Doesn't that sort of take away the determinism? No, it doesn't at all, not at our current level of understanding. So the mathematical laws that Schrodinger wrote down for the quantum evolution are as deterministic as the laws that Newton wrote down. They determine probabilities, but there's no place in those laws for anything other than deterministic evolution. Now, you can get novelty because when you bring complex things together, they can co-mingle and interact in ways that may be surprising. And I'm using human language to describe it. Sure, it comes right out of the equations, but it still can be novel by any human barometer. So I wouldn't say that novelty goes away, but yes, free will may go away. Mm -hmm. So free will meaning choice. There's no such thing as choice. That's I do right. not choose to love. I do not choose to ex extend myself. I don't choose to live, to get back to Well, Kemmel. it all depends on what you mean by choose. So if by choose you mean that you could have done otherwise, mm -hmm. then I would say yes. But I would say that you need to redefine the meaning of the word choose. Choose mm -hmm. is the sensation of choosing. Now, it is the fact that the laws of physics were just playing themselves out, and that is fundamentally why you did what you did. But to choose is to have the sensation of making that choice. And we all have that sensation, and that is a definition which I think works well. It does require a little bit of rejiggering of your intuition to mm -hmm. recognize that it may be the case that it, the laws of physics that are behind the scenes doing it all. But yes, that sensation of choice is real. And that's what we should redefine free will to mean. Free will Free to will is the sensation of making the choice. Uh, Even though behind the scenes, the laws of physics were pulling the strings. Thank you. I'm still not persuaded. <laughs> I, my second question, oh. though, uh, has to do with um, positing the divine reality, which you know, let's use the God word, as somewhere outside, above, and beyond the, this physical universe, or this universe that is manifesting itself through these physical laws, which you and your scientific cohort are, are perceiving and, and uh, questing for. Why do you keep positing it above and beyond, since we in the Theological Guild are not doing that anymore? Well, if you use the word God to mean a, a being that is composed of the same stuff that we see in the world around us, governed by the same laws that that stuff is governed by, then God is a perfectly coherent and sensible idea. Mm -hmm. And if that's what you mean by it, then we're talking the same language. Well, but I if you mean what traditionally is meant by God, mm -hmm. which is a being that can intercede, that can cause things to happen that are not governed by the laws of physics, then we are talking different languages. And I should say, I'm not saying that that idea is wrong. <laughs> it may be right. It may be that God is behind it all. Maybe God set it all up, and you know, there's some variations of these ideas where God sits back and lets it all play itself out. Mm -hmm. And that could well be what's going on. What I really mean to say is not that the idea is wrong, but as a scientist, I find it profoundly uninteresting. 
because it gives me no new insight into any of the deep questions that we've been talking about here. Mm -hmm. Doesn't help me calculate anything, doesn't help me gain some insight into these big mysteries. It simply takes one mystery and uses another three-letter word to relabel that mystery. Mm -hmm. And that is why I don't find it interesting. Not that it's wrong, I don't find it interesting. And that's why I think the dialogue between religion and science is so urgent and, and interesting. Because oh, but I from, should point out. Let me world, just point out. I find the dialogue between science and religion exceedingly interesting, mm -hmm. because to me, it's a conversation that really speaks to who we are and where we've been and our desire to understand and the stories we tell ourselves and root to trying to get deep understanding. I find that profoundly interesting. Mm -hmm. When I said it's uninteresting, I meant in terms of the questions of physics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't allow me to gain any progress in those questions. But okay. your questioning you. physics no, sorry, helps we, we me understand God. Okay, thank yeah, thank you. Yeah. Let's be, try to be succinct. Okay. Thank you both for coming to speak with us today. My question is actually in regards to attention that I picked up on in the conversation regarding the interaction and overlap between the science and the humanities. On the one hand, I agree with you, your analysis, Dr. Green, in that the sciences and the humanities are fundamentally interconnected and are really just two different sides of the same coin. But I noticed, and I apologize if I misquote you, Krista, um, <laughs> that when you were asking Dr. Green to explicate his views, you said coming from a non-scientific or non-science perspective. And so that seems at odds to me, because if the sciences and humanities are fundamentally the same, how can there be such a thing as a non-science perspective? I mean, speaking from personal experience, I'm an undergraduate here, and I took the course to which you referred, Frontiers of Science, and it seemed to me like there was a knowledge barrier. Um, because I'm not a science major, I don't have a particularly strong science background. And so I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on your personal perspective. So I said from a non-scientific perspective? No, um, she... So maybe Krista right. should address your <laughs> <Either>. question. Yes. <laughs> um, Let's 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 take another question. Let's let's just. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we should keep moving. Let's let me let, give let's one. Let, let me that, give you one. Yeah. Answer, you know, so one quick answer is I think there will come a time when we won't draw these sharp distinctions right. between these different approaches. Mm -hmm. So it won't be, for instance, that there's some film that has some science in it. It'll be a film, and of course, some films will have some science in it. It's not that we have a, a theater piece or a piece of literature that had some science at its core. It was just natural because that's the part of human experience that should be woven into these artistic, humanistic disciplines. So I think that time will come. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> a question that may well be very related. Um, Dr. Green, you speak quite beautifully of this mad mathematical reality that undergirds our understanding of our experience that we get up through these deep questions. And the way you describe it makes it sound like it's realer than reality as we experience it. Um, and I'm on board with that as much as a layperson can be listening to you in translation. But my question is, as the answers to these deep questions become more and more counterintuitive, how useful or how real is any of this as it becomes accessible only to people who can understand these sorts of wonderful mathematical answers? Well, again, things that are complex to us, 100 years from now, we'll be teaching it in second grade. So, so we, we, we see this all the time. And so I don't think we can judge things by a snapshot of a moment in time as to things that we're comfortable with and things that we're, we're less comfortable with. But I think it's important to recognize 
that, as we were discussing before, even the abstract, esoteric ideas of quantum mechanics, you are carrying around quantum mechanics in your pocket if you have a cell phone, right? The fact that you have that device, the fact that you have a personal computer, the fact of anything with an integrated circuit, it all relies on this fancy math of quantum mechanics that allows us to manipulate electrons to make them go through these tiny microscopic circuits. So these ideas are not just mad math. They're not just weird and abstract insights into the way the world works. They actually have a way of infiltrating our everyday lives. So I think that makes it clear that these do matter, regardless of whether the person with the cell phone understands Schrodinger's equation, it really does matter. And in time, I think the barriers between those who understand these ideas and those who don't will again lower because over time, ideas that seem impenetrable to one generation become second nature to the next. Last question. Well, thank you very much for being here tonight. Um, I had the privilege of asking this question to John Mather and Neil Tyson, so now it's, it's your turn. Would you be willing to speculate on what happened in the moments before the Big Bang? I would, but I think the <laughs> key thing to bear in mind is the question may not have any meaning, mm -hmm. right? So it could be the case that time itself came into existence with the Big Bang itself, right? The, the analogy that we love to use is, you know, it makes sense if you're walking on planet Earth to say, hey, can you point me in the northward direction? And you walk further north. You pass somebody else and say, oh, which way from here is north? And they point you in the northward direction. When you get to the North Pole and you say to somebody there, how do I go further north? They look at you kind of quizzically and say, you can't go further north than the North Pole. Here's where north begins. So it may make sense similarly to talk about 10 years ago or a billion years ago or 13 billion years ago, but when you get right back to the Big Bang itself, the notion of an earlier time may have as little meaning as going further north than the North Pole. Now having said that, it may be that there is a time before the Big Bang. These are deep questions that we don't know the full answer to, and there are theories that envision that our Big Bang is simply an interesting and important moment for our realm, but it may not even be a unique event. There may be many big bangs, going back to this idea of many universes, and these other big bangs, in some sense, exist outside of our time. So in that sense, there could be a whole reality out there populated by expanding realms, perhaps similar to ours, some very different, in which physics is playing itself out in one environment or another. So that would be not only the notion of before the Big Bang, it would be outside of the Big Bang. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's a tension here between uh, what I believe is just... Uh, hey, what did Neil say on that one? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I wondered that too, but we don't have time. You can ask later. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking about a recent conversation I had with Martin Rees, who is an astronomer, astrophysicist, I believe. Um, he says something very clearly, but I think this also is in your work. Um, I think this is a common assumption that as complex as black holes and black holes are and um, 
everything that we can know about the cosmos, we, uh, living beings, are the most complex creatures we know of by far. And um, there's a way in which when you describe kind of how thick we are <laughs> in not being able to, so that, 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 that somehow makes us sound rudimentary when in fact we are still the biggest mystery. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. The reason we physicists work on the problems that we do is really because they are incredibly simple, right? So we've done a very good job at understanding the electron. We've done a very good job at understanding simple atomic elements. The mathematics behind them is really well understood. But I think the way to organize your perception of the landscape of reality is to imagine that you've got things that are, are, are very small and very big. You've got things that are very light or very heavy. And those two extremes take you to quantum mechanics for the very small, general relativity for the very big. But you also have another axis, which is going from very simple to very complex. Mm -hmm. And we are far out on that axis. So we are these complicated collections of particles and it is very hard to understand such a complex system. So we are very, very far away from being able to write down an equation, if you will, that would allow us to understand what you're gonna say next or predict what you're going to say next. But that, to my mind and to many other physicists, is simply a matter of in practice versus in principle. Hmm. If the laws of physics are as we understand them, and this may change, I always qualify yeah. that by saying that there are things we don't, and like the quantum measurement, there are mysteries, so don't get me wrong. But if there's no qualitative change to the way the laws of physics operate, then your actions, however complex they might be to understand in detail, are governed by the same laws that govern the hydrogen atom. And from that perspective, we do understand you fundamentally, even though we can't make the kinds of predictions that we can about simple systems like okay. electrons and simple atoms. So Einstein said that he had a um, cosmic religious sensibility that was about wonder and awe and a sense of mystery, and that that was, that was enough, right? Um, do, uh, tell me, do you have a cosmic religious sensibility, or is, is that a phrase that resonates with you, or how would you describe that? Yeah, it all, again, you know, it all depends on what these words mean. Right, right. But So, so, so without labeling so it... So what words would you use yeah, for so yourself? Without labeling it, I would just describe it as I have a, a deep sense of the, the amazing harmony of the way the universe is put together, that with these very simple mathematical laws that really can be written down on a t-shirt. This is not apocryphal. I mean, my kids have such a t-shirt, right? And they wear it sometimes. Using those laws, we can understand really how the universe evolved from a split second after the beginning. The Big Bang is still a mystery, but we can understand how it evolved from a split second after the beginning, more or less till today, and understand its gross detailed features pretty well. That's an amazing thing. That is spiritual to me. The fact that it all, this, this complexity in the world out there can be reduced to a few simple ideas. The power of the math, to me, is almost a spiritual experience. So yes, I would say if that is a good definition of what is religious, then I'm very religious. I'm just, you, imagine, you mentioned your kids, and I'm just imagining how handy it would be for them to tell you that they had no choice 
to do what they did because they have no free will. They do. <laughs> and they're right. They never get punished. But I had no choice to punish them. That's the response. That's right. <laughs> um, I just, I just wanted, just following on that idea of um, spiritual sensibility. You know, the another another idea uh, image that Einstein used was that of a mind or an intelligence behind the universe, by which he did not necessarily mean a creator God. But um, especially with regard to this, this matter of hiddenness and this thing we've been circling around the whole time, that, that what, what you know to be the nature of reality is not something we can perceive in the thick of experience, which is all we have. Um, so if you think about, and I don't know if this is a useful term for you, but if you think about a mind or an intelligence or even that order behind the universe, then, then you know, how do you imagine that um, also as something that incorporates hiddenness as a way of making its point? Yeah, so, I mean, there is some debate as to what Einstein really meant by all these, these wonderful quotes that some of which he never even said. But I think the, um, the important thing to bear in mind, I think many physicists have this perspective. We don't envision that there's some mind behind it all, but right, we do. No, yeah. But I would say that we do envision that there are these powerful laws that can do things that you wouldn't expect them able to do based upon the most naive look at the equations. I mean, how could it be that general relativity, the simple equation, and quantum mechanics, and the standard model of particle physics, if we put that into the mix, over the course of billions of years, can somehow conspire to yield you and me, this complex, cognizant being. How could we really just emerge from the laws of physics acting through evolutionary change? But that's the power of the math. So if you want, there is the, the hidden hand, Call it the hidden hand of God if you want. I would simply call it the hidden hand of the equations. Hmm. And that gets us from the beginning to here. Okay. I think that's your last word. Thank you, Brian Green. Thank My you pleasure. all for coming. <laughs>